Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians 4, verses 7 through 18. It can be found on page 985 of your Black Pew Bible. Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts, and with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to see all your faces. We're glad, we're glad to have you this morning. Uh, in um, N.T. In Wright's commentary on Colossians, he says this. Paul's ministry is in Christ and reflects Christ at every point. The young church is, has come to fullness of life in him. All that Paul has said to the Colossians amounts to a royal invitation to adoration, gratitude, and love. God has in Christ reconciled to himself the world he created through Christ and now invites his people to enjoy that reconciliation, to grow up into the full and rich human life of the new age and so to enjoy him. By beholding Christ, the image of God, they are to be changed into his likeness, end quote. This sermon will conclude our time as a church in the book of Colossians, and I've, I've received tons of feedback about how walking through this book has challenged us as a church and how it's blessed us as a church, we've heard reports of how this letter has impacted the lives of people week after week after week, and that means we should give thanks. That means that we should be grateful. Thanks to God for prayers that were answered. Thanks to God for bringing conviction of sin. Thanks to God for bringing comfort. Thanks to God for causing us, causing us to have that one conversation that maybe we've been avoiding. The Spirit of God has illuminated this word to so many of our, per our people during this season, and I want us to decide proactively to, to, to be grateful and, and thankful and praise 
God for that. Grateful for God's leading, grateful for the ministry of the word in our lives, and thankful for one another in this room. People's hearts have been renewed. People's zeal has been deepened. And the unity of this church has been strengthened during our time in Colossians. And I praise God for that. And that being said, the way I want to conclude the book in our time in Colossians is with a clear, compelling understanding of its, its most powerful, central themes. And, and first, we have this cast of characters with interesting names, to say the least. And I want to roll through the, that list with some explanation before we move forward. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the cast of characters first, and I'm going to draw out a few observations from that list that Paul walks us through. And then I'm going to move towards some things about the book of Colossians, some overarching kind of themes that are woven throughout that I'm burdened that we not forget. So the first section I'm going to talk about is just three observations based on Paul's conclusion with some implications for our church. And then the second section, I'm going to talk about four quick lessons from the book of Colossians. And before I do that, I'm going to pray. So why don't you all join me as I pray? So Heavenly Father, would you lead us? Would you direct us? Would you open our hearts? Would you make our hearts good soil for the word to go down deeply? For, the word, for your word, for your word to go down deeply and to grow in us fruit. Would you strengthen our faith? Would you bolster our courage? Would you comfort the, the weak and the weary and the tired and the despairing? And would you uh, convict and cut down the prideful and the arrogant this morning? Give us all soft hearts. Give us all humble hearts. Give us all receptive postures to your word, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The first observation I'm going to talk about is really just regarding relational restoration. Verses 7 to 10, we see Tychicus and Onesimus, and they are carrying the letter, and we see that they were sent to inform and to encourage. And then we see an important figure show up. We see this guy, Mark. And this story, his story, is a gift to many people in our church today. And I don't want us to miss the significance. Mark's a character that shows up a lot in the New Testament. And what's important for us to consider is that he's also the center of controversy. He's the center of a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Paul was Barnabas's cousin. Or sorry, sorry, sorry. Bar Mark was Barnabas's cousin. And in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, we read that Mark was chosen by Paul. And many commentators point out that that's most likely at the recommendation of Barnabas. So Barnabas vouches for his cousin and then Mark works with Paul and Barnabas, but there's a scuffle, there's a disagreement, there is um, a controversy regarding Mark. In Acts 13, you can read about how Mark left Paul. And Sam Storms offers this brief summary of the incident. It says, whatever the reason for Mark's refusal to continue with Paul and Barnabas, whatever excuse he used to make a hasty retreat to Jerusalem and the comfort of his home, Paul took it as a sign of weakness and immaturity and unreliability. 
So did Barnabas, I suspect, although later they would differ greatly on how best to deal with the problem. So Mark departs, and that causes Paul and Barnabas to have a differing opinion about what to do next and what to do with Mark. Paul saw things one way, Barnabas saw things differently, and both of them were godly men, and they probably had good godly reasons for how they saw the situation, but they couldn't agree, and the solution was to separate separate over the issue. Barnabas went with Mark and Paul went with Silas. So as I read this, as I read this, uh, this, this picture of Mark showing back up in Paul's kind of uh, positive speech or commendation for Mark, there was one glaring lesson for me. A glaring lesson to be learned from Colossians chapter four, verse 10, which says, if he comes to you, speaking of Mark, if he comes to you, welcome him welcome him. Paul separated from Barnabas over some fault or some lack of reliability that Mark was guilty of, according to Paul. And here we see him restored in no uncertain terms to the status of colleague. Paul makes this really plain by calling Mark a fellow worker. And then in verse 24 of the book Philemon, he says the same thing. And then again in 2 Timothy 4, 11, at the end of Paul's life, he's asking for Mark to be present with him. Paul's gone from dividing over the presence of Mark in his ministry to saying that he's very useful to me for ministry. And this is one of those moments where the Bible is painfully relevant to our lives. This text offers us a very earthy and tangible example of relationships being restored that some of us need to hear this morning. I don't know know how many of you have experienced division in ministry or division in the church that's been painful for you, but I suspect a lot of us have. And this example of the restoration of Mark is a great help to those of us that have. It helps me keep my heart soft toward the opportunity for God to restore relationships in the future. The restoration of Mark and Paul should help you pray with fervent optimism for relationships in your life that look unsalvageable. This example should function as a reminder to everyone in our church who has experienced division in ministry that God's not done with the story. He's not done with the story. Maybe you need to be reminded of that this morning, that God's not done with their story, whoever they might be. And I say that kind of thing not so that we can be self-righteous or so that we can, we can gloat or so that we can have kind of pious feelings of superiority over other people. No, arrogance and conceit should be far from our hearts in a situation like this because let me remind all of us in the room that we're not the good guy in our own story. God is. And they're not the good guy in their story. God is. You can have a soft heart toward the possibility of restoration because this whole bit is God's story. Every single bit of it. And I seem to remember that in God's story, somebody came back from the grave. So restoring Mark and Paul's relationship is small potatoes for God. 
And so is the restoration of any other relationship in your life, no matter how dead or tattered or gnarled it looks. Now, just seeing, just observing that God restores relationships won't actually fix one that you might be grieving over, but it might protect you from cynicism and skepticism. Being reminded right now that our God is a God that reconciles enemies can help you fight against being jaded and brittle and bitter. How's, how's, the, how's the quote go? Bitterness is like eating rat poison and then expecting the rat to die. But being reminded of this helps you keep your heart clean and soft towards the possibility of restored relationships, even where it looks hopeless. And your end, your side of the equation is the only one that you can change at all. It's the only side of the equation that God expects you to change and expects you to address, not their end. You can't change them. You can trust God for that. And then you can own your own responsibility to maintain a soft heart and faith for restoration to happen. That's my first observation is drawn out of this picture of Mark back in the story. My second observation with implications is something like what, I, what I'm going to call gospel teamwork or, or kingdom networking. My point here is that it's clear from the vast web of relationships in this text, in this vast web of friendships that are mentioned here at the end, that Paul saw the ongoing ministry and spreading of the gospel as a team sport. We hear about Aristarchus and Justice and Luke and Demas and Nympha and Archippus. Some receive different commendations from Paul. Some receive different honoring descriptions, but all of them, all of them are making this thing function, making it work. One commentator highlights that at least three of these names were guilty of ministry failure, but not right in this moment. And as I read these names and details, I'm reminded that the advancement of the gospel is a team activity. This is why we're zealous here to be in relationships with other like-minded churches and like-minded ministries throughout the city, throughout the country, and hopefully throughout the globe. We want there to be networks and affiliations and partnerships with other churches and other organizations that love Jesus and that love our church and want to see us flourish as a healthy and maturing body of Christ. And this text today reminds me of how important that is. We want to be a unity-building church. So we're, we're friendly and we are for other churches in our city that preach the gospel, even though we may disagree on secondary issues. We want to encourage and support other ministers of the gospel, and we want to speak well of other churches here in this church. We're not in competition with any other churches in the city. We are for their health and their flourishing and working hard towards our own. And we don't want to be conceited or arrogant about any blessings that God might show us. We want to maintain um, a spirit of humility and gratitude. And we long to have deep, meaningful relationships with other churches, 
Churches that share similar mission and vision and values. Churches that are maybe farther along than us and can provide wisdom and assistance as we're getting more established. Churches that want to stand for the same things that we want to stand for. And churches that want to fight for the same things that we want to fight for. We love to find other churches and extend a right hand of fellowship to support them. And and this is how the gospel spreads. Paul invested his life in all these different avenues for the sake of seeing the gospel push forward and out into the corners. This is how Christianity was a movement in the ancient world before it was an institution. And let me, let me sum it up this way. What God's doing here, what God's doing here isn't about us. It is about Jesus Christ. And the impact of the gospel is served by Christians and churches serving and helping one another. And Paul makes that plain. And we will always be a place that looks at the bigger picture and wonders how God might use other churches to bless us and use us to bless other churches and other gospel movements that we're connected to. That's my second observation. My third observation is just about chains. Chains. Paul finishes his letter by saying, remember my chains. And I wanted to ask this morning, I know there's some people in the room, but have you ever thought, have you ever thought about this um, with real severe direct application? Like, have you, have, have you ever been to prison? Have you ever visited somebody in jail? Have we ever visited somebody in prison? My guess is maybe, maybe some of us have and, and, and most of us haven't. And probably even fewer of us have had the opportunity to visit someone in jail who's in jail for preaching the gospel. So I'm not up here to advertise for prison ministry, even though that's a worthy endeavor and it's a beautiful ministry. The point I'm making is that Paul was in jail and he suffers countless things for the gospel. And here he's asking them to remember his chains, remember his chains. Commentators are are kind of across the board on this. Is he asking them to pray for him to be released? I don't know. Is he asking that they take him seriously because his his imprisonment is able to demonstrate his commitment to the gospel? I don't know. But he was in jail and he was in jail for doing something that if it wasn't illegal, it was definitely culturally off limits. And why do I mention that? I mention it because if you went to visit Paul, it would not go well for you in that day. You would be persecuted and you would be mocked and you would be scorned and you would be beaten and ostracized and maybe you'd be the next person to go to jail. You'd be taking a massive risk to visit him in prison or to write him or just be friends with him. And I want this church to be the kind of people that are willing to take those kinds of risks. What will people think of you if you talk to that person? Or if they find out that you're friends with somebody in prison, so to speak. Someone who's now an outcast or someone who's a cultural pariah. Substitute whatever stigma that is the cultural equivalent. In that day, you would stay away from somebody who was in prison for the reason that Paul was in prison. Otherwise, you knew you were bringing on scorn and mocking and derision. What will the crowd in your life, the in crowd in your life, what will they think of you? 
I long for this to be the kind of church that doesn't organize decisions around that kind of social pressure, but instead we allow the word of God to shape all of our decisions and we get really clear in our hearts that it's the word of God that establishes our convictions about who we stay connected to and who we minister to and who we love. In 2 Timothy 1.16, Paul's in prison and he mentions someone who wasn't afraid of being associated with him. Paul says, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Success. For he often, he often refreshed me and he was not ashamed of my chains. So someone gets mocked in our lives for doing something good or for loving Jesus and we have a temptation to be ashamed because we don't want to be mocked too. Or someone suffers for the gospel and we're scared that we'll be lumped in the same category. So we do what Peter did and we say things like, I don't even know that guy. We're even ashamed of Jesus instead of standing tall and owning that we worship the God man who was humiliated in front of the entire watching world. We forget that being a Christian means we join Jesus on the cross, even if it looks humiliating to all of our friends. And we visit people in prison. We even joyfully accept the plundering of our property in the process because we know we have a better possession and we have an abiding one. If you went to visit Paul in the ancient world, your house might get looted, literally. And today, in our modern world, if you visit Paul in prison, your reputation might get looted or your career might dead end or some of your friends will say, if you don't distance yourself from that person, then we're through. And I'm praying that God grants us the courage to stand tall with a clear conscience and a sincere heart on that day. And that's hard. It's like that verse in Romans that says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus for it's the power of God for salvation. And the truth is, is that many times we are tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. It's easier said than done in some circumstances. But in that moment, we can repent and ask for more grace and more help so that we're not ashamed of Jesus and so that we're not embarrassed about other people's chains either. That's my last observation. And that concludes just three observations from these, these few verses. And now I want to jump through really quickly four lessons that I just want us to take away from the book of Colossians as we close today. The first lesson is that if you don't know already, you're being influenced all the time. You are being influenced all the time. The whole structure of this book revolves around the impact of the student-teacher dynamic, student-teacher relationships, the whole book. Paul's teaching, and there are false teachers that are also teaching. And the lesson that I want us to take away is that you're always being influenced. Some other voice is always around. You're constantly being taught by someone or something. And that shouldn't be hard to grasp in our day and age because we live in an age where, where influencer has become a career option. It's become a self-appointed job title. And what do, what do influencers do Well, nothing really, but they blow winds of doctrines in your direction, and then we set our sail by those ideas. 
The reason that works at all is because we're gonna set our sail by some doctrine. We don't have a choice. False teaching works. False teaching works at all because we're listening already. You can be baited at all because we're hungry already. And you're on the hunt for something to calibrate the compass of your heart already. Paul's dealing with opposing views and opposing pictures, opposing explanations for what you need, for who you are, for what you should be doing. And that's no different from our lives today. You're surrounded on all sides with competing worldviews and competing perspectives and competing instructions about what you need and competing visions of what the good life really is. Nothing's changed. Bait works because we're built with taste buds and hunger already. You can't stop from being influenced by something. Will it be a false gospel from false teachers or will it be the true gospel? Will it be an atmosphere that surrounds you with pressure on you or will it be the risen Messiah, Jesus Christ? The lesson you have to take from this book is that we'll we'll be sitting ducks if we think that we aren't absorbing the false teaching of the world that surrounds us. You can't not be influenced. Double negative. The second lesson I want us to consider is that only Christ can hold you together. Only Christ can hold you together. Asceticism or spiritualism or any other ideologies or any other false religion in your life can't hold your life together. You can't arrange a life that holds without Christ. He is preeminent. He is central, not only in form, but also in the function of our lives. Nothing else can fulfill the role of being central in our lives. Idolatry and Christianity are not a one-to-one ratio. You worship Christ and all the orbits of the components of your life are held together or you worship idols and the gravity that orders things ceases to be and everything flies around crashing into each other. Colossians 1, 15 through 18 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's not a suggestion. Paul's not writing some cheesy love song about Christ saying that he should be the center of your world. He's explaining why the universe stays being the universe. Why the world coheres at all. By him, all things were created and he holds it all together today, right now, when or if tomorrow comes, when or if the sun rises tomorrow, it will be very literally because Jesus Christ told it to. That isn't allegory or metaphor. It isn't like he holds everything together. He holds more together than we can possibly imagine. And he's the only one that can orient you. Christ gives you bearings for life or you don't have bearings. He navigates your life or your life is lost. He directs your passions or your passions direct you. There aren't any other options because nothing else can hold anything together. 
Your idols compete with Christ and your idols will always lose in the end. That's the truth. And in the meantime, we have to ask ourselves, will we give up and quit trying to make a life that works where we're trying to make ourselves center or ourselves central or ourselves preeminent? Will we lay it down again and acknowledge Christ's preeminence and submit to ultimate reality? Which brings me to lesson number three. Only Christ only Christ can organize your behaviors. Only Christ can organize your obedience. The scriptures are full of commands. The scriptures are full of instructions and prohibitions, but the scripture's aim in all of these commands is to aim at our hearts and not merely our actions, our, our, our hearts and our actions. Colossians 3.17 says, whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, so whatever you say and whatever thing you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. And submission to his lordship is the only thing that can organize behaviors rightly. How do we know what to do? How do we know what to say? How do we know how to handle a million tiny decisions every day? Before the face of the living God, we can live and work in the world in a righteous way. It's by living in the realm of the kingdom of God with Christ as the king that we can arrange and structure obedience and decision-making in general. How do you know how to be a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter or what kind of employee should you be? And you know because Christ instructs us, instructs us in his word and God's law is written on our hearts. We need, as human beings, we need a rubric you need a plumb line. You need something to set your decisions against to know if your decisions are straight or crooked, to know if they are life-giving or death-dealing, to know if you're righteous or unrighteous, healing or poisonous, good or evil. That is what the Lordship of Christ organizes for you. You can know which way to turn and what to say and how to move forward in the world because he's provided principles in his word, principles of wisdom and love and charity and instructions to obey. And that rubric for us, that direction and instruction for us is God's love for us. He's the creator. He knows better than we do. As you, as you encounter the inevitable challenges that this broken world will throw at you, the only way you'll know what to do is if you're living submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Your appetites will rule you or you will rule them by the power of the Holy Spirit under the lordship of Christ. Your, your, um, your circumstances will shipwreck you or you will endure them by the power of the Holy Spirit under the Lordship of Christ. Your challenges and problems in your life will steer you away or you will stay the course by the power of the Holy Spirit and under the Lordship of Christ. In this world, you will have tribulation, but don't lose heart, take heart. I have overcome the world, Jesus says. And this brings me to the, my last and final point. It's just that only Christ can make you mature. Only Christ can make you complete. Only, only Christ can make you perfect, one text says. Spiritual maturity, spiritual maturity has been a theme throughout Colossians. And in our text today, we get to see it one more time. Chapter four, verse 12 says, Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ, Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, 
that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. It's been Paul's struggle this whole time, and not only Paul, it's also been Epaphras' struggle that these Colossian Christians would grow and be mature in Christ. From chapter one, we saw this maturity means being complete in Christ. Another translation renders it perfect in Christ. And one commentator writes this, quote, Paul does not offer a 10-step program that leads to some kind of spiritual quintessence. Whoever belongs to the exalted Christ and has unwavering trust that he is Lord over all other powers and forces will be perfect in Christ, end quote. The struggle of Epaphras is the struggle that Paul expresses throughout the book. There's nothing in the world that can anchor you like Christ. There's nothing in your life that can build you up like Christ. There's nothing in your life that can establish you like Christ. There's nothing in your life that can root you like the gospel of Christ. The world is replete with all kinds of alternatives, but they're not only bankrupt, they also require something of you that God doesn't. Isaiah 46 says, Bell bows down. And Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. So Bel and Nebo are false gods. And, and the prophet Isaiah is saying they have to hitchhike to get a ride. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden. They themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age. I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. Worshiping idols in our lives, trying to make other things central than Christ in our lives makes us foolish. It makes us fools. Worshiping things or ideas or safety or comfort or control or fortune, worshiping anything other than God, the triune God, worshiping those things makes us foolish and irrational. We chop down a tree. Other places in Isaiah says, we chop down a tree and with half of the wood, we, we start a fire and we cook our dinner. And then the other half of the wood, we carve an idol and we get on our face in front of it and we worship it. That is nonsense. It is nonsense. And this type of religious devotion is all around us. Our hearts are susceptible to believing that we can be made perfect or mature or complete if we become super spiritual or if we buy the right house, or have the right self-discipline, or if we have the right career, or if we have the right spouse, or if we have the right kind of kids, or, or we eat the right food, or buy the right cleaning products. In the modern world, we are surrounded on all sides by religious devotion to all kinds of things that make promises that they cannot keep, that they cannot keep. The right checks with an overdrawn bank account. We, we seek to grow, we seek to learn, we seek preeminence, we seek transcendence, we seek rest, but true maturity is found only in Christ. The truth from Colossians is that reaching all the riches of full assurance comes from Christ. 
What we're looking for is found only in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And, and because of this Christ, broken relationships can be mended. And because of this Christ being knit together as a body of believers heart to heart with one another in partnership for the gospel is worth all the difficulty that comes with it. Because of this Christ, you can live sincere lives, not fearing the stigma that may come from loving other Christians, even the ones in prison. His, his influence is the only one that ultimately matters. Living before the face of God is the only audience that matters. His preeminence is the only one that can hold you together. His lordship is the only one that can bring order to your decision-making in your life. And his power is the only one that can make you truly mature and truly complete. This Christ is the one we're going to celebrate in a month on Christmas Day, his coming into the world in the incarnation. And this is what we're going to spend the next four weeks anticipating as a church. We begin the Advent season next Sunday, and this Sunday is Christ the King Sunday. And the function of Christ the King Sunday is to usher in this season of yearning and longing and anticipation for Christ's arrival. The longing for the Messiah to appear. That's what we celebrate at Advent. And it's our longing for the risen Messiah to reappear and put all things to right, to mend everything that's torn, to reweave everything that's in tatters, to recreate, to renew, and to reconcile all things to himself. So I'd invite you, as I close the sermon, I'd invite you to spend this season, this whole season, meditating on the glories of Christ, stoking and stirring and cultivating in your heart longings for the return of Jesus. And one final note as I close, I'm gonna read from Colossians 1 as we finish the book. Colossians 1, 11 through 13 says this. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Heavenly Father, would you, uh, would you be pleased to, um, to send your spirit to convict us of sin. Like, like the psalmist prays, like would you help us see our hearts rightly? Would you help us see if there be any grievous way inside us? Would you help us see places that we avoid immaturity or avoid growth or avoid painful circumstances? Would you help us lean in and trust you 
Spirit of God, would you awaken affection for the glory of God? Spirit of God, would you awaken hope in this season and peace and joy and love in this season? Would you unite the hearts of the people in this room to fear your name together as we march forward? Would you use... Would you use your word to convict us and to take more ground in our hearts? Would you be our obsession, our delight? Would you awaken us in places that we are numb or kind of dead? And would you convict us in places that we are self-sufficient and proud? And in all things, would you make us humble and gracious grateful and patient. In Jesus' name, amen.